Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for promising that it'll be a light to our path. And we pray that we would believe it more fully and allow it to transform our own words. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. King Wilhelm was walking down the street in Prussia, which today we know as as, uh, Germany, and King Wilhelm was having an issue with, uh, I shouldn't say actually that he was having an issue, he was about to have an issue. Bendetti, the French ambassador, walked up to him on his morning walk and began to converse with him. Now, Bendetti was on a mission for France because there was nearly uh, the chance for a Prussian king to be seated on the Spanish throne. And France got really nervous about this because they said, if, if, if a Prussian gets onto the uh, Spanish throne, then they're going to have more power and they're going to be able to get Spain on their side against us in the tensions between Germany and France were uh, very tenuous at this point in time. So as they began to converse, the Vendetti said to the king, he said, I want for you to commit that there will be no Prussian king that ever sits on the throne of Spain. The king said, I can't commit to that. That's a forever and ever thing. It's just, and in his own polite way, he basically said, no, that's not going to happen. I'm sorry, I can't make that type of commitment. And observers who were watching from a distance said that they parted coolly. You know, it wasn't the best of conversations, but it wasn't that intense. And he had treated him quite politely for a king. Well, he had his assistant send a report of the conversation to Bismarck. Now, Bismarck was given free reign to provide a press release about what had taken place. And as he provided the press release... To the public, he changed things just a little bit. He, he used a little bit of hyperbole. You know how it is when you kind of have uh, feelings about what's really going on in a situation, or maybe you saw things a little bit this way, or, or maybe you just want to add just a little bit to the story to make it just a little bit more exciting. The Ems Dispatch has become famous for starting the Franco-Prussian War. And this is what Wikipedia tells us about it. It says, Bismarck's text gave the impression both that Benedetti was rather more demanding and that the king was exceedingly abrupt. Just a little hyperbole. He was very demanding and the king was very abrupt. It was designed to give the French the impression that the king had insulted Benedetti. Likewise, the Germans interpreted the modified dispatch as Benedetti insulting the king. Gave this idea that there was insults going back between the two. And that's not quite what was happening. I mean, it was a a difficult conversation, but there's a little hyperbole there. Bismarck had viewed the worsening relations with France with open satisfaction. If war had to come, the sooner the better. That's how Bismarck felt about it. In fact, he went on to remark to friends, his press release, he assured his friends, would have the effect of a red rag on the French bull. He he said, hopefully this will result in war. And the Ems Dispatch is known as having started the Franco-Prussian War. There are power, there is power in your words. Did you know that? And it can be a power for good or a power for evil. The Franco-Prussian War, there were 1,100,000 
uh, and 50,000 military casualties and about 250,000 civilian casualties. About 150,000 of those were in Germany due to the smallpox pandemic that was going on at the time. Pandemics aren't a new thing. You think about it. Imagine your words producing the casualty of millions of people. Are words really that powerful? It's fascinating when you think about how God created this world. He used his word to do it. But you know, there's something fascinating back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. If you'd like to join me in your Bible, you can do so on the first page, first written page of the Bible, or you can do it on the screen. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we tend to think about the Christian walk in terms of if I follow Jesus, I'm going to end up where? In heaven. Good, Melania. Thank you. And if I don't follow Jesus, where am I going to end up? Not in heaven. (laughs) We're Seventh-day Adventists. But in general, we tend to think in hell, right? That's what the Bible teaches, that we'll end up either in heaven or in hell. But here's the fascinating thing. Where did hell come from? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It says nothing about creating hell. In fact, if you read through the Bible, there is one verse that says something about there being fire prepared for the devil and his angels, but there is no text that can tell you that God created hell. It's pretty fascinating. So, where did hell come from? And, and what does it look like? What is the Bible picture of it? We're going to begin to delve into this topic that you might think, I, I don't really want to talk about that. But I want to tell you that God is love and that everything he does is immensely beautiful, including hell. So where did this concept of hell come from? Well, we need to go back a little bit before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We need to go back a little bit further in history because somebody shows up that brings hell to this beautiful planet. Because God, after he created each day, he said, it is good. At the end, he said, it's very good. It's, it's a beautiful creation. There's no, uh, no disorder, no disruption to his beautiful reality that he created. And we looked at last week how Reality is fundamentally social in nature. God is love and he's created us for relationships. He created Adam and Eve and he said, I'm making them in my image, male and female, and they're going to be one. They're going to have this beautiful relationship that's going to be multiplied over and over again on the planet. But somebody came in, an intruder, an intruder who actually, his problem started with words. We learn in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13, it says, For you have said in your heart, talking about Lucifer. Notice the very first thing that we learn about Lucifer, the very first seeds that we find of sin, which eventually leads to this concept of hell, it occurred with what? Words in the heart of Lucifer. They weren't even expressed yet. He just said in his heart, I will ascend. I will make my throne on the mount. I will be like the most high. I will. And in the process of that, he's also saying in God, God is selfish. God's holding something back from me. He is beginning to frame words against God. And so we're told in Revelation chapter 12 that war broke out in heaven. This idea of a polemic, a a war of words that where we get our, our dreadful word politics from today. Well, Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, it tells us about 
this being that he was cast down, it says the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. He's known as the accuser, both of God and later on of human beings. In Zechariah chapter 3, we find this amazing story where he's accusing Zechariah the priest. And we find it with Job. We find again and again that Satan's goal is to accuse, to use his words for deception and for accusing, for tearing people down. That's why his name Satan, meaning adversary, or can also be translated as accuser. And in the the New Testament here, he's just called the accuser. He's known by the words that he uses. And that's exactly what he did in the garden, wasn't it? As Eve comes by that tree that she shouldn't have gotten near, the first thing that he says is, did God really say, begins to question God's words with his own words. He says, did God say that you shouldn't eat of, of all of these trees? Planting seeds of doubt, misinterpreting God's word, And Eve responds with, well, no, God didn't say we couldn't eat of all these trees, but he did say that one tree in the middle of the garden, and that if we eat of it, we're going to surely die. And the lie we talked about last week that he said was, you will not surely die. Words that started a massive conflict on planet Earth, that today every death, every bit of disease, every bit of dysfunction in every family, every bit of heartache, every bit of that can be traced back to those words. That's the reality of what we're facing today. You see, hell began with words. Just look at what took place in Eve's life. When she took of that fruit, she took and she gave it to Adam. They ate together, and then they realized that they were naked. They went, and they're running and hiding from God. They're trying to clothe themselves with fig leaves. When God comes walking in the garden, they begin this conversation. And when Adam is asked, did you eat of that tree that I asked you not to eat of? Hell has begun within a marriage. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's, it's your fault, God, because you gave me this woman and it's the woman's fault because she gave me the fruit. And there's accusation beginning to take place. You see, this is the beginnings of hell on earth. You know, the Bible depicts that God made a beautiful, perfect creation but that hell began to break out by words, words that were misused. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do you believe that this morning? The words that I speak, they either bring life or they bring death. They bring life to you or they bring death to you. They bring life to me or they bring death to me. When you're just having a conversation with somebody, that conversation will impact that person's life forever pretty huge uh, claim that the Bible's making. But is that really akin to hell? Is that really, is Pastor Zach stretching it today to say, okay, so so hell began with words and that, that, that hell is created on earth through our words? Well, look at James chapter, actually, before we get there, Revelation chapter 14. We're talking about the third angel's message. Why are we even talking about hell? Because we've been going, marching through steadily through the three angels' messages. And the three angels' messages are about good news to be proclaimed to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And the third angel comes, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Here's the thing. What did the beast do against God? He spoke pompous what against God? 
He spoke pompous words against the Most High. He says, if anybody follows in the footsteps of the beast, if anybody receives his mark of character on them and becomes like the beast and begins to speak pompous words against the Most High, then that person will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And we looked at last week how this is represented preeminently in what Jesus did there in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he willingly drank that cup for you and for me of the, the psychological, emotional terror and horror that comes as a result of our sin. The separation, the aloneness that comes from that. Jesus felt it all to the core of his being and on an infinite level as he was ripped apart from his father and he fell dying there right in the garden. And it's also from that picture of Jesus going through this experience that we begin to grasp a little bit more fully the next words that, honestly, I'm not usually excited to preach about. I'll just be honest. These words, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. Sometimes I think, well, is there a misprint here? Is this, do I need to go research the manuscripts? Maybe my Bible, there's something wrong here. Maybe I need to get a different version of the Bible. Now, this is really what the Bible says. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone. What's going on here? A loving, merciful, gracious God who's saying, look, the end result of your sin is going to be torment with fire and brimstone. Well, as we begin to grapple with this topic, let's look back at Jesus' brother, James, and what he had to say as he wrote to the church in James chapter 3. And this, to me, was surprising. James chapter 3 reminds us of this reality that we find in Proverbs chapter 18, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. That that death that we find, that second death that we talked about last, last week, that is found there in Revelation chapter 14, that Jesus took for us, but that those who choose the beast will end up experiencing themselves. That that death, it comes, in, it, the, the root of it is the words. The words that you and I choose. James chapter 3, verse 2 says this. For we all stumble in many things. Is that true? Any sinners in the house today? Anybody who's, who's had some stumbling going on in your life? That's not something to be proud of, but it's something that you came to the right place. You come to Jesus because we need his grace. I need his grace because I have stumbled. I have fallen. This world is full of errors, of sin, of, of stumbling, Right? If anyone does not stumble, now it suddenly switches. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. James says, look, there's a whole host of things going on in this world. There's a whole host of evil and sin on this planet. And he boils it all down to one thing. And what is that? The words. The words that people are speaking. He says, if if people could get it right with their tongues, then... They would live perfectly loving, righteous lives. Verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. It's a pretty amazing apparatus, isn't it? You take a bridle and put it around a horse, and I'm no cowboy, but we'll have to ask Malin more details about that. But you put it in their mouth, you put that, that bit in their mouth, And you can take this massive beast and you can ride on it into battle. You can ride on it and it'll obey your directions to go this way or that way, theoretically. All because of what's going on in its mouth. 
The tongue, James says, it, it has power to direct your life. And then he uses this, verse 4. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a, a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Every massive ship, no however how big it is, it's still got that rudder. And it, it's not big in comparison to the ship, but it has enough of an influence to turn the entire direction of that ship. And, and James is saying, hey, look, you want to know how to turn the direction of your life? You think like it's going in the wrong direction? Start with your words. The words that you speak have the power of life or death to direct you in one direction or another. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. He compares it now to a, a forest fire. He says, yeah, it may be little, but it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And we unfortunately know that all too well in California. We've seen far too many fires blaze in California. This is the Tubbs fire. And, and I was researching the, some of the most destructive fires in California history. This is the one that, that burned through Santa Rosa. 5,600 structures were destroyed in this fire. I think it's like the third most destructive fire in California history. Burned in 2017. They did research and it took them a while to figure out where did this fire start? Is PG&E to blame for this? And Cal Fire ended up saying, no, this started at somebody's home with an electrical problem beside their home. It only took a small spark to get a massive blaze going that wrecked uh, 5,600 structures and also took 22 lives. James says the tongue is just a small member, but it only takes a spark to get a forest fire going. Only one little word can impact your entire life and the lives of the people around you. Verse 6. Okay, this is where we get into the place where we finally come to recognize that indeed our words actually do create hell in the world around us. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It says that the words that I speak, they create a, a world of iniquity. Tons of sins are created through the words that come out of my mouth. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Wow. It says the tongue is it's set there. It's just a little member, but it defiles our entire body. It's set on fire and sets on fire the course of our whole human nature, and it's set on fire by what? It is set on fire by hell. Set on fire by hell. It's saying the words that I speak, they're, they're hellish words. It's creating hell in the world around me. It's creating this isolation, this torment that is involved in hell. And that is all coming out of my mouth, out of your mouth, out of people's mouths in this world. And are we seeing that today? When you look at the world around us, things are amplifying. Social media isn't helping it. You'll see uh, entire organizations ripped apart because of what somebody says on a social media platform. You see people's lives wrecked because of the words that are spoken about them. We see entire nations that are impacted by a few words spoken by somebody on social media. Well, that word for hell here is Gehenna. There's three words that are used in the New Testament for hell. Uh, Tartarus is also used in Revelation, and that does involve a little bit more of a torment kind of idea. 
The second word that's used more frequently is Hades. It's used similar to the word that we're going to look at here. Hades, though, never refers to, except for maybe in Luke 16, to the concept of hellfire and torment. It refers simply to the place of death. The righteous are there, the wicked are there, and the place of death. That's Hades. And a lot of modern translations translate that as Hades rather than hell. But here we have the word Gehenna. It's set on fire by Gehenna. Gehenna is the Greek word that is used to translate the Hebrew phrase, the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a valley that runs by Jerusalem. And I don't know if you remember, but I shared with you a bit about this uh, back, I think, 2017 after I took the trip to Israel. I told you about my hike through hell. And you can find that on our um, podcast online or on our website. Uh, this is the word Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. But as I hiked through that, that valley, there was actually burn marks there. Things that, that had been burned, but I didn't find any actual fires burning there uh, beside Jerusalem as I hiked through the valley of Gehenna. Where did this valley's uh, symbology come from? Why did it become this symbol for hell? Jesus actually refers to Gehenna more than uh, pretty much any other author in the New Testament or any other person in the New Testament. Jesus refers to hell quite a bit. This idea of a torment that is coming that's represented by Gehenna. Well, the background for this is back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 7. We also find it in Chronicles and a couple other places in Jeremiah. But let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 31. It says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's Gehenna, the valley of the son of Hinnom. Gehenna, translated into Greek, uh, is what we find in the New Testament. To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Well, this is what is taking place in Gehenna, in this valley of Hinnom. They took their sons and their daughters. Can you parents imagine this? To imagine this picture of God, where he said, I want rain to bless my crops. I, I want this to happen with our military. I want for God to bless us. And God needs me to take my precious little child and to sacrifice them on an altar in order to enable him to bless me terrible picture of God that God goes on to say, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. He calls this an abomination multiple times. He said, this is, this is the farthest thing. I didn't even think about this. Where did you get this horrendous idea from? And this helps us a lot when we look at the cross to realize that there's something entirely different than the appeasement of a God who's angry taking place on the cross, Right? Today, as we focus in on this idea of Gehenna, as this, this idea of it representing eternal fire and torment, we get the idea that Gehenna was a place where babies were burned, where children were burned, where people were sacrificed. And later on, rabbinic tradition tells us that it actually became the place that Jeremiah actually said it would become. Let's keep reading verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no longer be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. This is going to become a place that's just filled with bodies as a result of their choice to participate in child sacrifice here. Well, rabbinic tradition later goes on to tell us that 
Gehenna was the place where, one, they dumped all their trash. Because this is a cursed place. We don't want to go there. Let's just dump all our trash in the valley of Gehenna. And so they dumped their trash there, and, and they'd light it on fire. They'd burn it. But when somebody was a heinous criminal, somebody was convicted of a crime, or somebody was just not worth a, a righteous burial, a, a burial of respect to put them in a tomb, they would take their bodies, take them to the Valley of Gehenna, and they'd throw them on the burn pile. If somebody was crucified, they didn't have the right of a normal bur- burial. You know why Jesus ended up in a tomb was because he had wealthy men who were coming and asking that they might have his body. Otherwise, Jesus would have just been thrown on the burn pile along with every other unrighteous criminal. This is the picture of where the worthless are thrown to just be burnt. This is the picture of where humanity is no longer valued. Verse 34 tells us what it will come to look like. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the cities of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. This is old language for having a really happy, festive, social time. That's going to stop. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. You know that? What, can you think of a, a happier moment than a good, healthy wedding? That moment when this life has started together, this, this moment of rejoicing and celebration, so that's going to not happen anymore. This whole thing that I said when I created man in, in my image to be, to be brought together, that's going to stop. There's no longer going to be that rejoicing taking place. And James borrows the language for all that this valley represented to say the tongue The tongue is lit on fire by the fires of that valley. Because the tongue is what, it it degrades the people around us. We we use it to, to, to basically sacrifice people. You ever seen that before? Where we, we tear somebody down bit by bit. We tell this story. Maybe it's just like uh, Bismarck. Is he, he put together the, the M's dispatch and, and he just uses a little hyperbole. Or, or just focuses on the negative parts of the story. And just, just share a little bit out there. And, and little by little that person's reputation is diminished. And I feel a little bit better about myself. James says that's, that's from the very fire of hell. It's from Gehenna itself. And unfortunately, the world today is wrecked with the carcasses of people who've been torn down by people's tongues. And it's happening in all directions. And right now we can sit here and I can, I can think about, well, you know, yeah, I can't believe that person said that. Or I can't believe that this political person did that. Or I can't believe... But in the world that we're, we're living in today, it's happening on all sides and in all directions. The fire is raging. And James is, is pleading with you and me to have nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with demonizing the people around us. Jesus actually uses this language again in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. He says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. You know, I think that 50% of the people in this country called the previous president a fool. And I think that 50% of the people in this country have probably called the current president a fool. 
It doesn't matter who you're, you're calling a fool. It doesn't matter who you're looking at and, and condemning. It's those people over there. They're the problem. Whoever you're tearing down, Jesus says, you are in danger. I am in danger of hell. Because our tongue actually produces hell among us. It divides us. It, it takes away our unity. It stops us from uniting. And the fundamental reality is that reality is social. God is love. And our tongues too often get in the way of that. Jesus goes on to say this, Matthew chapter 12, but I say to you that for every idle word that men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Think about that for a second. I mean, you know, we have this concern, right? That our privacy is being invaded and there's all this discussion about what are they exactly listening to? Is my phone like catching every conversation? Is it, does it know what I'm saying? Here's the deal, guys. Everything that I've ever said, everything that you ever said, it's been recorded. And it's going to be on a loudspeaker someday. Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says that whatever you've spoken in a secret place is going to be shouted from the rooftops. The secret things will be revealed. I want it to be the goal of my life, that I live every second wanting for the whole world to hear whatever I'm saying. Not in a way of like I have something important to say, but in a way that I know that I'm saying things in a way that, that nobody's going to be offended by it. On the day of judgment, we're going to come face to face with our words, words, even those idle words, the words that we speak in our spare time, the words that we think aren't that valuable or that, that we're really not meaning that much by them. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. What is it that condemns me in the end? What is it that condemns somebody that's not trusting in Jesus in the end? It's going to be our own words. They're going to come back on us. That makes me realize that I want to have a lot more merciful judgment for the people around me. I want to look at them with love. I want to use my tongue with the power of life rather than death. And, th- and that's the good news this morning is that, that we're talking about death being a power in the tongue. But, but there is good news this morning. And you're probably thinking, man, this is intense. Why are we talking so, so intensely about this? It's serious. And I want you to walk away saying, man, every word that I say is in- infinitely valuable. But it's not just because they can cause death, but also because they can cause life. There's a guy by the name of Stanislav Petrov. He worked in the uh, Soviet army during the Cold War. In 1983, he's sitting in front of his black, TV, uh, black computer screen that was used to, to use their new monitoring system of the United States. They had satellites that were monitoring to see if the United States launches any missile attacks. And as he's there monitoring his little screen, he said this, the siren howled, but I just sat there for a few seconds, staring at the, the big black, backlit red screen with the word launch on it. He said, then another siren went off, then another, then another, then another. Five missiles, it told, us, told him, had been launched. And then he said that the wording changed from launch to missile strike, that these missiles were on their way to Russia from the United States. And Stanislav Petrov's job was to notify the authorities so that they could send uh, the, the nuclear weapons from Russia, that they could make the launch happen from Russia. He goes on to say this, 
I had all the data. If I had sent my report up the chain of command, nobody would have said a word against it. And we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. There would have been all-out nuclear war on the planet. The planet as we know it would have looked entirely different if he had passed on the rumor, if he'd passed on the report. It looked like what was happening on the screen. Surely that must be it if he had just used his words to pass that on. We wouldn't be here today. But he chose to say, no, I don't think this is right. He said, I had a 50-50 chance, but I chose to give the United States the benefit of the doubt. And because of that, we didn't have nuclear disaster. There is the power of death and of life in in the power of your tongue when you speak words of life. And we see this in the only one who has gone through the torment and torture of hell. And that is Jesus. As Jesus was bearing our sin and all the emotional, psychological impact of the guilt of every human being on this planet, as that was weighing down Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, we talked about how he was desperate for sympathy. He was looking for somebody to comfort him. And as he went looking for that help, he found the disciples. And what were they doing? They're sleeping. They're not there to help him. What would be your response? What would be my response? I'm in the worst agony imaginable. It's a horrific moment. And the only people who could possibly be there to encourage me are sound asleep. Some friends, they are. There's a lot that Jesus could have said that was truthful in that moment. But he chose to say this in verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, the the spirit is willing. You you have the the right heart. There's just some weakness in your flesh. Desire of Ages comments on it this way, saying, page 689, the weakness of his disciples awakened the sympathy of Jesus. Even in his great agony, he was seeking to excuse their weakness. Seeking to, to find an excuse for why they're doing what they're doing. If only that were my mindset every time somebody does something hurtful or that I see them doing something that I know is not right. If only I was looking for the reason, for the excuse to try to see the best in them. Then it goes on. After the third prayer, he comes back and finds the disciples sleeping. And then the, the mob is being led to him by Judas. And it says this in verses 48 and 49. Now his betrayer went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Man, there's a lot of words that I could think of for Judas in that moment. How about you? A lot of things that I would have liked to call him in that moment. And this is what Jesus used. Instead, I, I skipped the next slide, but he said, Friend, why have you come? Friend. He called him friend in the midst of his horrific suffering when he's betraying him, when he's coming to bring a mob to take him to be crucified. He called him friend. Desire of Ages, uh, page 736 says, Thus, the pitying Savior in the midst of his intense... Oh, sorry. We put that one in too early. Let's see if we can come back to that. <clears throat> but Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Page, uh, verse 50. So then Jesus is is in Pilate's judgment hall. He's been flogged. He's been mistreated. He's been through so much physical as well as emotional pain at this point in time. He's been falsely accused time and time again. And as he's uh, again brought before the people, they say he needs to be put to death because he claimed to be the son of God. This shocks Pilate. 
And he pulls him back into his chamber and begins to question him again. And as he questions him, here you have this pompous, royal Roman. Jesus could say a lot to him, couldn't he? But Jesus chose to say this. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You see what he's doing? He's like, you know, Pilate... Those guys out there, they're making a worse mistake than you're making right now. He's seeking to build up with his words. He's seeking to find the best possible construction of the person's motives and intents. And we find Desire of Ages says, page 736, Thus the pitying Savior in the midst of his intense suffering and grief excused as far as possible the act of the Roman governor who gave him up to be crucified. I need that attitude in my life. To where I'm seeking as far as possible to excuse the people in my life who are doing things that are difficult. I'm doing whatever it takes to find a reason to excuse them. But it keeps going. Luke 23, verse 28. But Jesus turning to those women who were weeping as he's bearing the cross up to Golgotha. They're weeping as he can't carry it. He says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for yourselves. For me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He has this sympathy even for those weeping women, and he recognizes what's going to happen to them. Uh, Then he's being nailed to the cross, and as the Roman soldiers are nailing him to the cross again, his words are words of life. Jesus said to them, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Hang on, they, they're nailing you to the cross. They can see that you're innocent. They, they have to know what they're doing, Jesus. But Jesus recognizes that they're blinded by sin. He recognizes and puts the very best possible construction on their intents and motives. And that, that's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to treat people with that way. Whatever their worldview may be, however their actions may be, however I may feel about them, God is calling me to live like Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus is there on the cross and he sees his mother there. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his, his mother, mother, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. His only thought is to speak words of life, words that will create social relationships that will be of benefit to his mother, to his disciple. He's doing everything he can to bring heaven to this hellish planet, to establish the kingdom of heaven here and now so that we're ready to go to our heavenly home. And then there's those two thieves on the cross. Both of them were told in Matthew's gospel were railing upon Jesus, telling him to come down from the cross. But one of them eventually, looking at Jesus, realizes that he's wrong to continue doing that. And so he says, look, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? At that moment, Jesus could have looked at him and said, you? You're a criminal. You deserve to be here. And you've been insulting me this whole time. You're making my life difficult. I don't want to live with you forever. But instead, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was using his words to bring life, to bring heaven on earth, and that is what we are called to do. Desire of Ages, page 752, says, In his humiliation, he as a prophet had addressed the daughters of Jerusalem as priest and advocate. He had pleaded with the Father to forgive his murderers. As a loving Savior, he had forgiven the sins of the penitent thief. First Peter, 
tells us that this same lifestyle is for you and it's for me. Verse 21, it says, for to those, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? His suffering, the the way that he went through that agony of hell, it's there as an example for you and me that we should follow in his steps. We should, should, should do the exact same things. Notice verse 23, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Acts of the Apostles, page 119 says, Christ-like love places the most favorable construction on the motives and acts of others. God wants you and me to speak life. You know, this can enhance your relationships in your life. This can make your world a better place. And I'm learning that, that words affect even just, the, just our, our home life and our children. This past week, Leah came to me. She said, you know, Livy was upstairs talking. And she said, she said, mommy hero. And she said something about her being beautiful. She said, I know where those words came from. You're always telling her that I'm the hero. You're always telling her that I'm beautiful. The words that we speak shape the minds and the lives of people around us, especially our little ones. What's the impact that my words are having, that your words are having? I wish that all of my words were words like that. I can think of words this past week that I wish I'd never said. I wish I could take back. Thankfully, we can trust in the mercy and grace of Jesus. We can trust in his forgiveness. But I want more and more to be transformed by his love, to put the best construct on others' motives and actions. And I want to close with this quote from the book Mere Christianity, a great book written by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, he gives us a little picture of what might be helpful for you. It's helpful for me. And thinking about, but that person, they're living a despicable life. They're, they're criminals. They're doing this. They're doing that. And we immediately put our list together. But notice what he says. I'm sorry, this is finishing Acts of the Apostles, page 119. It says, It does not needlessly expose their faults. It does not listen eagerly to unfavorable reports, but seeks rather to bring to mind the good qualities of others. How do we do that? Check this out from your Christianity. Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. Moral choices is a, a good way to describe our character. It's, it's based upon character. Now, now notice this. He says, when a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason. Now, I get this. We're on the, the, uh, a walk yesterday before Sabbath, and, and we're walking with the girls, and there's all of a sudden, Abby lets out this blood-curdling scream. She's just screaming at the top of her lungs. Like, what is it? Is she dying? No, there's a cat running across the street up there. We don't have cats in our house, and they're, we're, we're trying to help them learn that they can pick up a cat, they can pet a cat, that cats are their friends, but they're just not there yet. All right, so when a, pathologi- when a neurotic with a pathological horror of cat forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it's quite possible that in God's eyes, he has shown more courage than a healthy man who may have who's shown in winning the Victoria Cross, getting a, a medal of honor for some victorious action. This picking up a cat could be a more courageous action depending on the person. He goes on. When a man who is 
been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing, from birth he's, he's taught that this is the way to live, does some tiny little kindness or even just refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risk being sneered at by his companions when a man uh, sorry, we're going wrong. He may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. Somebody that's been programmed their entire life for evil, and they simply do a kindness for somebody, that may be a bigger feat than for you and me to lay down our lives for somebody. He goes on to say this, it is well as well to put this the other way around. Let's, let's flip the coin and let's, let's look at the other side of this. Some of us who seem quite nice people may in fact have made so little use of good heredity and good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. Romans chapter 2 says this, you point out the evil in them, but you do the same things. You don't recognize that you are just as guilty or likely more guilty than that person because of the fact that you're pointing the finger. Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with a psychological outfit and then with a bad upbringing and then with the power, say, of Himmler? Himmler was the one who Uh, executed the death camps for Hitler. He's responsible for six million deaths. He ended up committing suicide once Germany lost the war. But maybe, maybe Himmler, maybe he made some positive moral choices. How can we know? That is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw materials. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. What his character has become. The choices that he's making. He doesn't regard where this one was born or where that one was born, but he takes into account, is this person choosing in the right direction? And he goes on to describe how when we come to the judgment... Everything else is going to be stripped away. It won't matter anymore. Our background, it won't matter. Our heredity, all of that physical part of our character will be stripped away. And in that moment, as we stand face to face with God, the one thing that will matter is that we've made the right choices. We've chosen the character of Jesus. And then he says this, We shall then see for the first time, we'll see everyone as he really is. There will be surprises. I love that. If you feel discouraged about where you're at as you try to measure yourself up with other people, just trust yourself to Jesus. Jesus is the judge and he's the one who seeks to put the best possible construction on your motives, who seeks to excuse, who seeks to be there for you. He's the coming judge who it says that out of his mouth a sword is coming, who it says that the the wicked will be destroyed by the breath of his mouth. He's a merciful, gracious God who seeks to put the best on other people's motives and actions. And he's calling us to live the same way. Just a couple practical tips as we close. One, stop listening, watching, and reading words that reflect the accuser rather than Jesus. There is stuff on the radio, stuff that we're reading, stuff that we're watching that is accusing people in the world around us, and that is of Satan. I just have to tell you today, that is of the accuser. And that stuff has to stop in my life and in your life. The hatred is not helping for us to become more loving in our lives around us. Number two, take more time every day to meditate on God's word. 
set aside whatever time it was that you're listening to that garbage and, and take out your Bible and read the promises. This is about what he's promised to you and about what he will do for you and how he will transform you and how he wants your love to increase more and more so that we can experience heaven on earth on our way to our eternal home. And then finally, encourage someone every day. Write a caring card. There's ones in the pew in front of you. You can grab one of those out, write a note on it, and take it out, put it in the mailbox in the lobby. We'll mail it to somebody for you. Or just send somebody a text or a call. Take time to meet with them face to face. Do whatever it takes to be speaking words of life rather than words of death. And in closing, there's just two prayers to pray. I want to encourage you to pray these prayers from Scripture. Psalm 19 verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I like to pray that a lot. I didn't share James chapter 3 verse 1, which says teachers are held to a higher level of responsibility. Speaking words like this means that I need to pray more than anybody else, and I seek your prayers for me, that I will speak words of life and not words of death. And then finally, number two, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let's pray. Father, as we just bow our heads here, in this place, we recognize our need of your heart, our need of your love. Father, thank you that it's your righteousness that we need. It's not to just try harder ourselves, but Father, thank you for pointing us in the direction that you will lead us. Thank you for for revealing to us what hell is like and how hell is perpetuated in our conversations each and every day. Father, I pray that you lay it on our hearts right now. Maybe there's somebody that we need to go to and apologize to them for the words that we said that were hurtful. And Father, maybe there's something in our life where we're listening to words from the accuser rather than words of life. We need to just set that aside in our lives. Or maybe there's, there's people all around us that, that could be encouraged with words of life. Lord, would you lead us to speak words of life to them? Or maybe, maybe there's somebody here who's just been telling themselves lies. And they need to say in their heart, I am a child of the King. I'm his beloved child with whom he is well pleased in Christ. Lord, help us to speak truth. Help us to speak life to ourselves, to the people around us. And Lord, may we live lives that perpetuate life, that perpetuate heaven, and that are a part of dispelling hell. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you as you go out this week to live lives that are powerful, lives that will have an eternal impact. The words that you speak this week will change people for eternity. May it be for a heavenly impact. God bless you and have a wonderful week.